We go to Wellington now for Colin Peacock for Midweek Media Watch. He's in our Wellington studio. Kia ora. Kia ora, Karen. So let's start with misinformation. That's the topic of the day. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's the topic of our times, really, uh, the last few years. It's, uh, it's certainly a thing on the rise. But as you would have heard in the news there at 10 o'clock, uh, it's in the news today because the Classification Office, which is um, headed up by the Chief Censor, released a national survey of this 2,300 New Zealanders, concluding that uh, people are more exposed to it, or, or at least believe they are, uh, that the volume of it's increasing over time and undermining trust in things. This is the sort of headline finding from it. Um, and David Shanks, the, the chief censor, says, look, we've seen how this plays out overseas. Enough people believe in uh, fairly fringe or, or, or fake beliefs, and it can play out in the real world. Uh, we have experience of this from Christchurch in March 15th, 2019. And he says that, that finding that three quarters of people surveyed said this is an urgent and serious threat is something uh, that we need to act on. And while he says, you know, overseas is what a lot of people cite, you know, things like Trump when they think of misinformation or, or COVID and, and things like that, often it's overseas generated stuff. But two thirds of people in the survey did say they thought misinformation had a significant influence on people's views about public health here in New Zealand. And more than half of those surveyed believed it had a significant influence on domestic politics and people's perception of it. So, yeah, interesting findings there. Does the survey uh, say where the misinformation is originating? Is it the news media, Facebook, flatmates? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's a big part of it, people we know and, and trust. Uh, but six out of ten respondents, uh, my particular interest was in how the news media would fare here because there have been other surveys. The uh, AUT uh, did one trust in news earlier this year. And broadly, I think the findings in this one are, are about the same. So six out of ten people reported high trust in news media. Uh, and that's they also reported they trust it more, more feel they trust it or more favorably respond to it than overseas news media, which is interesting. Thing. Only 12% had high trust in news and information from the internet and social media, and 83% thought it was that group of 12% that was frequently spreading misinformation on purpose. So that too is an interesting finding. But broadly speaking, a reasonable level of trust in news media, um, but uh, people did say they trusted scientific experts and researchers a little bit more uh, and then a little bit less than that, but still more than news media, government agencies and officials more, more trusted. So those are interesting findings as well. And do you think it's likely to lead to anything? Well, hopefully lead to more research because it'd be interesting to know there's two sort of tracks to this. The volume of misinformation that people are coming across, is that increasing? Good to know that. But also whether people's fear of it or worry or concern about it is growing. You know, that thing about you've got levels of crime and then the fear of crime, and these are both significant things because perception's important. Uh, but certainly the report and, and uh, the chief censor in analysing it says these findings here that say almost three quarters disagree that people should be able to say whatever they want on social media if it's false and misleading. He thinks there is uh, you know, support for action uh, to be taken uh, in this. So he says we must take the findings of this report and meet this moment with meaningful action. But the timing of this is interesting because you know, earlier this month the government said it was going to review next year media content regulation. So uh, all, all of it, advertising, news media, all that sort of stuff, which is now dealt with by separate regulators. He's really backed that and says, look, he wants to do this. But I think, you know, to create a single regulator which has like census office or classification office functions in it, the media would definitely be twitchy about that. They won't want the power of a censor and concern about harm to get in the way of maintaining media standards. So that could be, you know, a, a fight for the future. Um, 
So certainly uh, the classification office, you know, pushing for this, saying we do need this media review and they want these findings and people's concern about misinformation to feed into it. But, you know, with all the worry about uh, and the political noise right now about free speech and nanny state and uh, and all all of the sort of hate speech right now, you know, this, this, this could be a bit of a battleground in future. And on to Red Line. It's a new podcast from RNZ. It's about New Zealand's relationship with China. And I've got the blurb here. It says it investigates China's influence in New Zealand and asks if we can continue to walk the thin red line between what some see as an evil empire, but others see as our greatest economic opportunity in the centre of a new world order. So is it doing a good balancing act then? <laughs> well, that's the thing. That, that question's slightly rhetorical. Can we walk this thin red line between, you know, good China, bad China? I mean, in a sense, we just have to. I mean, that's what New Zealand does. So it's a little bit rhetorical. But um, only two parts of this are out. The second part, the two, two parts of four, the second part came out uh, this morning. So p- plenty more to come. Uh, but it is doing a really good job um, even in the first two parts of, you know, that, that issue of China's influence in New Zealand and claims of what sort of things it might be influencing. It speaks to the dissident community. Um, but it's got a tricky task in that part, part of a large part of part one has to set out for the uninitiated, you know, China's modern history, how it came from, you know, revolution and Mao through Deng Xiaoping and the economic transformation um, and then the, the modern Chinese Communist Party still with that kind of unitary control, but all their concerns and their their international soft power and the Belt and Road, all of that is relevant background. So they try to do that in a very listenable way all the time, dropping in the voices of people like Sir John Key, who now has business relationships and dealings with China, and and, and other people who you're going to hear from uh, th- throughout the podcast. So it'll be one of those ones where you, you hear parts three and four, and they'll be referring you back to, and we heard from this person in part one. So, uh, you know, it's, it's designed for that sort of episodic um, listening. But one interesting thing is that they definitely have uh, an eye on the, uh, I think, around 200,000 odd uh, Chinese New Zealanders or even Chinese citizens who who live here um, when they're making this. So they really want them to listen to it. And as if to illustrate that, here's part of the promo that they've put out for Redline. Break into my office and a series of other events. They were designed to scare me. The choice is between sovereignty and servitude. I do have a lot of respect for the things that they're doing. Our people sacrificed our lives to defend the democracy of New Zealand. The new podcast, Red Line, investigating China's growing influence in New Zealand. Yeah, so I heard that, I think, on its first airing on Morning Report, and it really makes your ears prick up, doesn't it, hearing Mandarin in a promo like that. Uh, and they're not doing that just for the, the novelty value of it, that they want this to be heard by Chinese New Zealanders, uh, you know, to add to debate on the issues that, that Red Line raises. So it will be interesting to see what impact, what feedback they get. Well, of course, China's influence over New Zealand is a very, very big topic. And how do they tackle a topic so huge? Yeah, well, first of all, they do that, uh, paint the picture of current leadership of China and why it's so sensitive and determined to control the narrative and assert itself around the world um, and also prepared to antagonise Western nations, which, you know, because on the face of it, they've spent a long time building up relations, economic, diplomatic and so on, with the Western world. So that needs a bit of explaining. Um, and they do a good job of that with, with the New Zealand context in mind. Um, 
And they also, I mean, because bits, only bits and pieces are sometimes reported about some of these issues they talk about. For example, prominent voices like um, Professor Anne-Marie Brady, you know, off, often in the news, you know, making claims about Chinese influence and even interference with her own activities and at New Zealand universities uh, and so on and, and with other dissidents who live here and criticise the Chinese Communist Party. So they investigate as best they can, you know, the sorts of claims she's made about things like, for example, that a car uh, was um, sabotaged after a break into her garage. You know, they get the police files or what they can from them uh, and try and make their own judgments about whether uh, these might be overreactions or not and try and weigh it up. But it's, it's, it's very difficult. But one of the best bits is hearing from you know, the authentic voices of Chinese New Zealanders. One of them they pick out is the Auckland-based uh, scholar and writer Tsai Mok. Um, you know, she's very outspoken but, but very witty. And uh, she explains um, how the Chinese Communist Party still considers that it has a claim of loyalty uh, on the loyalty of Chinese descendants from other countries like New Zealand. And she talks in, in red line about how that feels. And it's kind of laughable, though, to us as people, um, out here in the diaspora for a lot of us because there's obviously a big gap between what the government is trying to achieve, that is what the Chinese government is trying to achieve, and what it can realistically achieve. But she says the CCP has begun to have some success. I think that it has probably achieved quite a lot in terms of um, setting up certain institutions, setting up certain levers of influence... He's got a very deep voice, hasn't he? Yeah, John John Daniels dropped into the into the middle of that, and that's an aspect of it. Actually, you, you find Guyan and John Daniel are two presenters um, who also did the service together because John has his own company, Bird of Paradise, uh, which is a podcast producer that's made this program and, and also yes made the service together. So you know they edit down quite tightly the thoughts of people, and, and John Guyan drop in and explain what's going on. But I've never heard what Samming Mock was saying there articulated quite like that. And she also spoke about, you know, when you got to the early 2000s and it really looked like China was opening up to new thinking and new thoughts and people were finding ways around the Great Firewall and censorship and, you know, certain sorts of art and technology were flourishing and it looked like things were opening up. And then, you know, this uh, in more recent years, you know, a sort of sense of, well disappointment and a bit of dread that, you know, the party seems to be asserting such control and using technology to do it and, uh, you know, quite a, quite a feeling of despair about it. So, yeah, it's quite affecting uh, to hear that. Well, there are a lot of Chinese language media outlets in New Zealand. We've got radio, several Freeview TV stations, newspapers online. Uh, do they cover the subject of whether they suffer any interference from China? Yes, they do. And, and that's, for me, this is one of the really interesting bits because on a few occasions, stories about this have, have popped up and it's been quite hard to get to the bottom of. I had, I've had a couple of goes over the recent years on episodes of Media Watch, but it, I don't feel that I really got very far. It's quite hard to get straight answers or, or direct interviews and comment from people. Um, so Redline speaks to, for example, um, dissident newspaper publisher Chen Weijiang. He founded uh, the weekly a New Times paper in Auckland, and he talks um, about the Chinese embassy in New Zealand getting onto him pretty much as soon as he started, putting pressure on him to make the business difficult. Here's a little bit of him speaking in red line. Um, this is from part one of the podcast uh, series. This is via a translator. Um, so uh, my newspaper at that time was the first uh, newspaper, uh, Chinese newspaper in New Zealand that uh, uh, that's printed by the people from mainland China. He says staff from the Chinese embassy came to the opening of the newspaper 
because they wanted to support it. But uh, not long after we established this newspaper, they started to give us pressures. Chen Weizhen says he was given lists of issues he could cover and journalists who could write for the paper. Yeah, so disappointing, you know, things that he really wanted to exercise his freedom uh, of the press you know, when he came to New Zealand and create a new kind of paper. And, uh, you know, he has said these things before. It's been reported he turned up at a parliamentary committee and made lots of claims about pressure from uh, Beijing and Chinese Communist Party uh, operatives he, here in New Zealand, um, putting pressure on media outlets. And some of these have commercial relationships with New Zealand media companies, big ones like NZME and stuff. Uh, so, yeah, th- this, again, stuff I've, I've tried to get to the bottom of previously uh, for, for Media Watch and found it just really hard to get straight answers from the people involved. So that's Red Line and the Otago Daily Times uh, made a cover star out of one of its own reporters. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, this is John Gibb and it makes me feel a bit older. They say he's retiring after 33 years at the paper, which is quite a stint and, and local reporting uh, at, at the paper dedicated to that. He interviewed me years and years ago when I was at the University of Otago student paper. Um, so yeah, that makes me feel seriously old because he must have been uh, not that far into a stint at the paper actually back then. But uh, they made him the cover star of the weekend magazine The Mix uh, for the weekend edition of the ODT so two articles really, one was a profile of him where he's extremely humble and he says you know I'm I'm hating this Um, I'm used to asking questions, being asked them is almost incomprehensible really hated but they did write a nice uh, biography of him and the way that he did his work but also alongside that they let him write in his own words so he wrote a a piece called um, Catching the Turning Tide and what he wrote about was local ideas and people who have chased things up locally, you know, sort of civic things, uh, and been rejected time and time again. But eventually, because of the length of time he's done his job and stayed in touch with those people, these become ideas whose time has come and have been accepted. He says it's a real privilege to watch carefully and discover that some people show through vision and persistence um, apparent lost causes can uh, can be won and, and often our world is the better for it. So yeah, quite, uh, quite um, nice to read about that. But he retired last week, so 33 years at the ODT at an end for John Gibb. And a happy retirement, John. And a new comedy on talk radio. And this wasn't Paul Cassidy, was it? Didn't he do Go Ahead Caller? Uh, he did for RNZ. This is a bit different, though. It's TVNZ On Demand, so it's not on television, which I think which actually should be. It's Mike Minogue, who people would know from Wellington Paranormal. Uh, I think he's the writer of it, but it's a six-part comedy. It's all there, so you can binge watch it in one go if you want to. But the plot is Malcolm White is a hard-talking, right-leaning kind of talkback radio host. A younger left-leaning personality takes the number one spot. How far will he go to rule the airwaves again? Um, Here's a little blast of Malcolm uh, on the air in part one. Yesterday, I had a hair appointment on Ponsonby Road, so I gave myself a very generous 20 minutes to travel the two kilometres from my house to the salon. Well, guess what? It took me an hour and a half. And why? Potholes. The size of the acne pits on a teenage boy's face all up and down Ponsonby Road. So here we have a middle-aged, right-leaning talkback host who wears a blazer in the studio every day and drives a Lamborghini sports car. So I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that any resemblance to any living, prominent person on talk radio is just purely coincidental. <laughs> Thank you very much, Colin. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Look forward to it. Thanks, Karen. Colin Peacock with Midweek Media Watch.